Welcome back to What Do You Want to Watch, the show hosted by myself, Nathan English, and David Dirks. And we have a new format for you guys this week. We want to talk about movies again. It's been a while since we just had a movie episode. So we're going to do something called Let's Argue. David and I are each going to present a take we know for a fact that the other person disagrees with. And we're going to try to argue our point, see if we can sway them over. So there's probably going to be a lot of anger, um, maybe some expletives, and definitely some annoyances on this podcast. So stick around. All right. The first edition of Let's Argue. First of all, the rules are there aren't really any. This isn't going to be like a super structured format. It's not going to be a Lincoln-Douglas debate or anything. Um, But what's going to happen is the person is going to present their point. There's going to be a time for a questions or even a rebuttal from the other person. And then the presenter can answer questions and kind of argue back and forth. We'll probably do about 10, 15 minutes with each of these. When we get to a point where the conversations kind of hit a lull, we will then have the other person rate on a scale of one to five, how good the argument was. One being that argument sucked. There's no merit to it. And five being, you have swayed my opinion. I now agree with you. There is a 0% chance that is about to happen. But, you know. Why am I already upset with you? And we don't even know what we're talking about. (laughs) We're both famously stubborn people. um, So there's almost no chance. Oh, yeah. Our listeners, too. Like, we don't know what each other's thing's going to be. I have no idea. We have not prepared. I I didn't want to make it so everybody's just arguing back and forth with, you know, like, oh, I Googled this and actually, yeah. So. My argument <clears throat> is about David's favorite movie of all time, and that is Interstellar, uh, Christopher Nolan's space epic. And here is my opinion. While Interstellar is a good movie, Interstellar is more akin to an overloaded all-meat pizza where you enjoy it while you're eating it, but at a certain point you start to think to yourself, should I have ordered something with less toppings that was actually more fulfilling? There's too much going on in this movie, and it – causes some problems with the movie i can already see david getting upset david again i admit that this movie is good but here here's some of the themes that this movie's plot tries to tackle i'm just going to list these for you fathers and daughters great that's a great that's in a lot of movies a great way to start a kind of a small scale story but one that can have epic conclusions famine and blight okay climate change sure space travel all right interdimensional travel Okay, science of black holes, okay, how gravity works, all right, the space-time continuum, the meaning of love, the singularity, event horizon, aliens, five, the fifth dimension, a tesseract, moon landing conspiracies, and secret NASA operations. All of this is wrapped up in the one movie, okay? Half of this movie's dialogue is exposition trying to explain to you in a normal way some extremely confusing scientific principle that you end up not really understanding either. Does does anybody come out of this movie understanding what happens at the end with Matthew McConaughey, the aliens, the bookshelf, and the fifth dimension tesseract, which I didn't even know that's what it was until I looked up the Wikipedia summary because I was struggling to find the word to describe it. Uh, This movie is good. It's it's it. Score is fantastic. Um, Hans Zimmer does a great job. It is even well shot, I would say, um, and scientifically accurate in many places, but it is trying to do too much at once. It's too many storylines. 
too many things to keep track of and it is too long. And that's why I think it is an all meat pizza that's loaded with chicken and bacon and ham and Italian sausage and regular sausage and pepperoni. And it weighs down the slice and it kind of ruins the integrity of the pizza. And you're left wondering if you should have just got pepperoni instead. David, what, what is your reaction to this take? Hmm. See, here's the thing, though. I think it's okay that a movie is somewhat hard to understand. I, I, I just, it kind of turns me off when people like don't understand the movie and then they, they almost. Oh, so now like, I don't get it. Okay. Now I just don't. No, get no, it. no, no, no. This is but, fine. No, great. No, it's fantastic. I, I'm not a huge fan. The people do this with Tenet, and Tenet was very confusing. But it's like, ah, it's not a good movie because I don't understand it. And I'm not like that's an oversimplification. I don't think that's what you're doing. But I think it's okay to have sometimes have these just incredibly deep and just thick movies to tread through and try to understand and have to to rewatch and understand. I, I, I have to say, I hate the way that you said thick movies. Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but but yeah, I, I'll admit sometimes I'm confused and it's taken me a couple of watches, but like the movie is so good that I'm like wanting and willing to watch it again to see, hear the music and to see some of the best space shots we've ever seen on film. And, and actually scientifically accurate black hole that, that based on one or two single images they have of a black hole, it looks like the interstellar black hole. And that it blows me away when I see that cinematography. But I think, yes, it does a lot. Christopher Nolan, I think, loves to like, like put his back against the wall. He loves to give himself tasks that are pretty, pretty tough to, to conquer. And I think that's okay. Yes, it's a, it, this is a deep movie, but. Uh, for me, it doesn't take anything away from it. The performances are incredible. The score is incredible. The cinematography is incredible. And I understand most of it. And I, under- I think I understand enough to be thoroughly satisfied uh, with this movie at the end. So that's, yeah, that that's me. See, here's what I'm saying. It is, it has a lot of those things, but it only touches the surface on most of them. The only plot lines that I feel like are fully developed are the father's and daughter's plot line which you could even argue that's not fully developed because quite honestly, we just skip out of the whole Murph, like saving the human race essentially. um, And just get back to the end. And she's like, you did it. Congrats, dad. You found this. But I don't feel like he touches deeply on a lot of these things. I feel like the movie is so overloaded with stuff that he can't dive into a lot of these topics, which is why it's disappointing for me. And I've already told you this, the best Nolan movie is Dunkirk. And why is Dunkirk the best Nolan movie? Because it's a personal story for him, because it has a basis in the real world where he doesn't try to start to warp and mess with reality and time and all that other stuff that gets him to a point where half his movie is exposition. And because Dunkirk is simple. Yes, there's some time stuff where he, some of it takes place in a day, some of it takes place in an hour, some of it takes place in a week. But it's simple. It's straightforward. You understand what's happening with each of the characters when it's going on. That cannot always be said for Interstellar. And I think Interstellar is a good movie. But I think when you look at Nolan's movies and you look at the movies that are the best, they're, yes, they have complex elements, but they have simple structure. Dark Knight is not a movie that has 85 different themes going on. Okay? It's ultimately just about Batman versus Joker. Everything Mm -hmm. else is ancillary to that. And The Prestige, another one of his best films, I would argue probably third or fourth best movie that Nolan has ever made. It is just too 
magicians competing over this one trick. Interstellar, you could say, is about the human race and saving the human race, but it's not because the majority of the plot does not focus on that. You got this thrown-in love story between Matthew McConaughey's character and Anne Hathaway's character that I don't feel the movie earns in any way, shape, or form. You have the whole Matt Damon side plot. What I'm saying is this is interesting, but it's too much to try to cram in one movie and you don't get to explore it all fully, which is why I think there's other Nolan movies that are better. Do you think that now, like some some of these may be there's always holes in movies, like the whole Anne Hathaway love story. Yeah, maybe that maybe that was like a hit and miss that we could have wanted more. But do you think do you think that Nolan like dips into these different aspects, the fifth dimension, all that stuff, on purpose, and then doesn't dip too deep deep into it to allow the the the, the watchers' imagination to take hold or to allow them to want more? And like, do you think he does it on purpose though? I feel like some of it was intentional, not to like try to just over explain every like you know what i mean i don't know i, That's I understand kind of what I'm yeah because then the movie would be even more exposition but this is what i'm saying is you present so many ideas and then you spread it thin to where some stuff is not making sense i just feel like the whole going into the fifth dimension tesseract thing at the end of this movie that again i enjoy i like interstellar my qualm is that i don't think interstellar is one of the greatest works of cinema of all time and I, I, that just feels like a MacGuffin to me. It, it doesn't make sense. We never get an explanation from this seeming alien overlord that is shepherding the people of Earth that we don't know about. And it's just like, oh, it was Matthew McConaughey all along that was writing in the books and telling himself not to go. Like, but I, I feel like that's just convenient at the end. Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. And, that's not it doesn't make any sense as in like you have to watch it multiple times because I'd look at a scientific a, a confusing sci-fi movie you could say is Annihilation right mm, yeah but at the yeah. end of Annihilation I'm not like okay well that just seems convenient like there's nothing at the end of Annihilation that makes it convenient I would say Arrival is the same thing Arrival is dealing with how we process time linear versus how an alien race would process time in a different way. That is inherently a confusing topic because mm -hmm. the one thing that we have constant in our lives is time. And when you yeah. start to mess with time, everything gets weird. But at the end of the movie, I don't feel like, oh, that felt really convenient. But at the end of Interstellar, I feel like, okay, the him shooting into the Tesseract in the fifth dimension and then being shot out by aliens and arriving on this like haven that his daughter has created 90 years later, and she's about to die, and then he just goes and finds the other astronaut on the inhabitable planet. Like, that all just feels like a, whoa, we had so many things to wrap up in the end because we did so many different plot lines. Here mm. we go. Yeah. I, I do see your points. Like, I, I, I'm not like, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard. But for me, I think, for me, like, that's just not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. Like, because I think, I still, to me, he still arrives where he wanted to. And also for me, like the acting and the cinematography and the music and the visuals and all that is just too just mind-blowing good where I'm like, yeah, I'm a little confused and maybe could have used more explanation, but this is just too good for me to, to affect it. So I think that's – I think it's like you you hit – you care more about a different aspect of the movie maybe in, in this example than I, than I care about more in that's another aspect true. kind of thing. You know, That's probably true. My argument would also be give me scenes outside of him in the fifth dimension going, no, no, the emotional Matthew McConaughey banging like, don't let her go. And the him crying in front of the video of his grown-up daughter, now Jessica Chastain. Um, what are some other memorable, like, 
What are some memorable pieces of dialogue in that movie? That's it's a three hour movie, and I for the life of me can't remember any of the lines spoken. Well, I know there are some, and I have not watched this movie in a while, so I don't have it like memorized. But him and Murph have some pretty powerful conversations when she's young, like in comparison, like talking to school and the trouble she's going through, and just like the expectation of her and what is probably going to happen, like stuff like that, and um. Mm-hmm. There's a, there's also like a powerful scene when, which I just, I was liking reviews while you were talking because someone was like, I'd be pissed too if my son grew up to be Casey Affleck. But, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's like, like that scene of like the burning of the a, corn is what you're talking about. Like an intense, like Murph's kind of been under control of Casey Affleck, his character. And like there, she's like, nah, like I, I'm tired of this. We're, we're doing something different. So yeah. And I will say like, Maybe this this movie I would say does lean heavily like visual and, and musically rather than like dialogue, which I don't mm-hmm. think is an issue. Um, mm-hmm. but I, I do see what you're saying. Like, there's not like it's not like a Terminator where there's like four or five like iconic quotes that you we still quote today. Kind of. I thing. just I just feel like it's Nolan makes Nolan has made better movies, and I think that this movie gets a lot of credit because of the sole fact that it's like audacious and. He tries a lot of different things, but I don't think it's better executed than a lot of his movies. So I, I just feel like for me, Dunkirk, The Dark Knight, Memento and The Prestige are all better movies than Interstellar. Mm. I, and I, I think that you could even mm, I don't know. I really don't like the third act of Inception, so I, I can understand how people put that below. But I just I think that those are so. I, I just feel like I'm screaming at a wall. Like those are so much clearly better than Interstellar, but it seems like, well, Interstellar has the like time or the, not the time. What's the cornfield chase, the the song hmm. from Hans Zimmer. And it has the, them spinning while trying to dock. And that's like, that's it. That's everybody's argument. I'm like, but these films are better. Like Memento hmm. is a much smaller film, but I feel like I get much more enjoyment. out. I'm much more satisfied with what no one's trying to do. I just don't feel like he hits everything that he's trying to do in Interstellar. No, I see what you're saying, and I think even when it when it goes to like my Kirsten Nolan ranks, these are all so close. So like I have a film at five where it, it's so close to one. I think where the final thing that I'll say that like, kind of tips me that I just love so much. One, I'm very, you know, my family we're very like science based, and we love my grandparents were science teachers. My dad was a chemist, so when I see like and hear see visually the space and, and the science involved and hear them talking about that, that just blows me away and I'm intrigued. Um, but also to the second thing, I just, yes, he might, you can, I'll, I'll listen to argument of that he has better films. A, a couple of their films may, might be better. I just don't think anybody could ever do what Interstellar was like Christopher Nolan did. I don't think any other director could, if, if you copied and pasted that script and, what Chris Renault wanted to accomplish in that movie. I, well, I don't I, know if a, a director could I, do visually, musically. Accomplish, I mean, I don't think you can, I don't think you can separate it from Nolan just because you wrote it. Like, I think there, if you give other directors the topic, I would argue that they would handle it better than Nolan did. Like, because mm-hmm. Nolan's script is Nolan's script, but I think there are other directors that could write better scripts or other screenwriters, I should say, that could write better scripts and then pair them with a good director. I, I, I genuinely believe Villeneuve could make Interstellar. Like I, I just do. Um, but would he get Hans Zimmer, and therefore the music wouldn't be as good? Yes, because he got Hans Zimmer for Dune. 
Wow. Great. Okay, that was a good point there. That was a good point. I didn't think Um, about that before I said that. Yeah, I mean, this sounds insane. I think Ryan Johnson could make Interstellar. Remind me what he's done. Looper, Knives Out, Last Jedi. Mm. I, I do. I just think he could. I, 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 that, that doesn't mean I think their versions are going to be as good as Nolan's. I think that Nolan was the best person for, for the film. I just don't think that the film is as good as everybody thinks it is. I think it's overrated. I simply just think mm. Interstellar is extremely overrated. And it's because of the music and the overacting Matthew McConaughey crying scene and the image of the black hole and everybody. Oh, don't you trash Matthew McConaughey. Oh, no, no, no. He's going for it. All right. Like it, that scene in a vacuum is absolutely ridiculous. And, and there's multiple times where it feels that way. And I'm not, I'm not trashing McConaughey. I think the overacting is part of the performance. Overacting in this sense doesn't mean he's doing a bad job. It means he's dialing it up because he knows he has to. Because if not, that scene doesn't work. If McConaughey is mm. not doing the ridiculous, like, crying thing, that is mm. the weirdest scene in cinema history. So he has mm. to do that. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think that there's better stuff, and I, I just simply think it's overrated. I think Interstellar is the number one mo- movie to – the most likely to movie to be in someone's top four in Letterboxd. It, they just recently released it, like movies mm. with the quote unquote most fans, and Interstellar is number one. And I just think, you know, like what you like, but so I you're in the minorities, way overrated. Well, yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's a hot. It's kind of a hot take, except it's not. I'm not out here like Interstellar is bad because I think if you're saying that, you're just doing it in bad faith. Mm. All, All right. right. Well, rank no, I, that, David. Rank my pitch on a scale of one to five. I'll do. I'll I'll give you a two. I won't give a you two. one. I'll give you a two. Okay. Better than once. I, because in a way, I understand what you're saying, and I hear what you're saying, and, and those, those are pretty good points. But for me, it's just. I mean, I went after your favorite movie of all time. I wasn't expecting you to be swayed by the argument. Yeah, but no, it's not a one. But yeah, you definitely you didn't like sway me. It's probably gonna stay in my top four. So, but it's well, definitely something to, something to chew on, you know. So yeah. All right. All right. Now for mine. I am here to tell you that Empire Strikes Back is the worst Star Wars. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. That was a joke. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. Oh, that was a, that was that was about. We were about to see like 48 points in five minutes from Nathan English there. If you said that, <laughs> yeah, that was you always have that insane. locked and loaded, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, baby. Okay. Okay. Real though. I'm here to tell you why Thor: Love and Thunder is a good movie. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Okay, I took some notes because it's important to, to, to lay all this out. So fourth installment of Thor, uh, and this movie is silly, sillier and a bit thinner than the previous three before it, uh, and I think that's okay. Um, with TD loves comedy, and just about anything he's in, he either directs the comedy or is the comedic relief in the movie. Uh, and he and Marvel Studios have turned Thor into this kind of comedic relief, both in his movies and like uh, in the Avenger movies and any other ones he has appearances in. So I think, like, this movie is a comedy, and when you use it through that lens, I think that helps you understand it more. Um, and side note, this movie would have been more depressing than any DC movie made uh, had they not had this comedy with a kid dying to start the movie and his girl dying of cancer to end the movie. Um, and, and I'll say just side note, well, I'll come back to that stuff eventually, but performances were just exceptional. Chris, Herm- Chris Hemsworth was solid as always. Uh, his comedic, the timing, the deliveries, uh, I think were perfect. I think he was very good. Natalie Portman did what she always does. Um, 
Christian Bale was creepy and he was weird uh, and he was in his element. I think he mastered that villain role better than anybody could have done that. I think he made it his own and I, I think he did a very good job. Uh, and the supporting cast contributed well as well with Korg and Tessa Thompson as Valkyrie. Um, so I, I still feel the story strong, right? We see Christian that starts with Christian's kid dying and, and the God mocking him for that. Uh, and then fast forward, right? We see Jane, a couple moments with Jane, um, one of the hospital beds looking just really awful with this cancer. Um, you, you see her pass away, but also there's a, that serious conversation while they're on that goat um, led ship, pirate ship in space where they have this like heart to heart. Um, so I think there are like sincere enough moments where you feel for these characters. You feel for Christian Bell seeing that. You feel for Chris and even Natalie as they're going through this and how she's dying uh, of cancer and of like, I want to be Thor, but that's ending my life sooner than if I were to try to fight this cancer. Um, so, so you still feel for that. And I think that gives the story some meat. I think you, you still think it, it's still a strong story. Uh, we care about these characters. Finally, this movie starts with Korg, that our, our rock friend, uh, talking to a bunch of kids, right? Telling him the story. And that's where this Thor Love and Thunder begins. His journey begins through Korg's storytelling. So Korg is nothing but the comic comedic relief of this group of any movie that he's in. And this is why this movie is so light. And there's so many jokes because I think we forget that it starts with Korg telling this story. So therefore it, that bleeds into the movie and it's told through his lens of always, always having jokes and always mm-hmm. making this movie funnier than maybe some would expect it. And I would say even for you personally, you came in with really different expectations than what you got. So I would encourage you maybe on a, on a rewatch, try to like, cause I came in with zero. I didn't know what to expect. And I would say when you rewatch that, try to try to pull all expectations away um, and kind of watch it like you did the first time. Cause I think you will get different results simply based on kind of what you were expecting. So that's uh, I think, I think it's possible. That's, that's my my take of why I think Thor: Love and Thunder is a good movie. All right, um, let me attack that uh, in a couple of different ways. First, uh, I do agree with you that the movie is more comedic because it is told through the lens of Korg. I just think that was a bad choice, um, given the material, the source material that you have, and in I just think this movie doesn't do a good job of balancing. I think it tries to do over the top comedy, and it doesn't use it in a smart way. Um, you're telling talking about stories that require kind of levity in some ways, or they're going to be super dark. Ragnarok is the same way. That is about the death of Odin and then the destruction of Asgard. Um, That is not a story that is light in nature. And I think that the way that Hela works as a villain, she works well with that kind of comedic tone because her whole, her whole tone is like, She's cocky. Like, it's the swagger that she has. Like, she's the most powerful. Nobody can ever beat her. Um, Gore's tone is not that way. Hela wants, Hela wants revenge um, because she was pretty much cast out by her father because they didn't want to be warlike anymore. Gore, the god butcher, wants to kill all gods because they let his daughter die. That is, that is a wildly different, um, I think, motivation and that's where i think the darkness comes in um and i understand wanting levity and it's an mc movie look we we expect jokes but they felt like they were so frequent and only a few of them worked for me 
Um, the opening sequence with the Guardians of the Galaxy was not funny at all, I don't think. Um, and the only reoccurring joke that I felt like worked besides the screaming goats was the Mjolnir and Stormbreaker kind of, <laughs> I guess, rivalry that they had. I thought that was interesting. But here's my problem. This movie is, you said it's thinner than the other Thor movies, but I think it had more to tackle. First, this is the first time we get to see Thor post everything that happened to him in Endgame. All right. And we expect this kind of journey to to change him in a way. But I felt like it was just a continuation of Ragnarok Thor. We ignored his whole arc in Infinity War and Endgame that led to him being this depressed person that needed to be reassured by his mother when he traveled back in time. And, and I felt like we left that in the past. Um, and then we just got a quick montage of him working out and he's all of a sudden strong again. Second, we get no explanation for really what the hap is happening with the Guardians of the Galaxy. And it felt like their whole sequence was, we just got to get them out of this movie somehow because it doesn't make sense that they're together. Third, Jane Foster is not developed at all. Um, the only thing we see is her through flashbacks trying to develop a whole relationship between them that we don't ever really get to see on screen. That is not Watiti's fault. That is the fault of the first two Thor movies for not properly developing that relationship into a believable one. But clearly Jane has been Thor for a while by the time this movie's real plot actually starts to kick off. And I don't feel like we ever get, we don't get a sense of her and Valkyrie being close, even though they clearly are like, none of that seems to go together and make sense. The Jane comic lines are bad. They're not funny. Like the Natalie, the lines that give Natalie Portman to be funny or not, they're real, almost uncomfortable at times. I I'm specifically thinking about the Bluetooth speaker joke with Valkyrie, where it's like, is it a grenade? And it's a Bluetooth speaker. And then they like kind of dance to it for a second. That doesn't work for me as well. Uh, the Zeus scene with all, you and I talked about this on the initial pod. There's like eight too many orgy jokes. I will, like, I will agree with you on that one. Those, those are, it is yeah. excessive. Um, and lastly, I don't think it looks that good with the exception of the scene on the black and white planet that Gore takes them to when they're trying to rescue the children initially. Other than that, the movie does not does not look stunning to me. It looks oversaturated with this kind of trying to do this colorful CGI. And, and I don't think this movie's awful, but I definitely think it is below kind of the standard that a lot of the MCU films has set. And I think that while there's moments, like you said, the the Jane, you know, being back in her cancer-riddled body. Um, and looking just terrible is one of the most powerful moments of the entire movie. But I think of another moment that should have been powerful is Thor reuniting with Lady Sif after all these years, you know, a person from home whom he once loved. And that whole scene is turned into a joke. Hmm. And this movie's about, is supposed to be about killing gods. Um, and why, why shouldn't the gods die? You know, we think that Gore has a good point. Why, why shouldn't the gods die? Um, and, and Thor tries to say, like, these were good gods. These helped the beings that lived on their planets. But we don't ever get to see that. And it just feels like Christian Bale's in a different movie. The tone just feels so completely off. Um, 
I just wanted, I, and I know that we turned Thor into a comedic character, and I think that the Thor movies have gotten better, but I think that this movie required a little bit more of a serious tone than we got with Ragnarok, and we just didn't get that. So I just didn't like it. Hmm. Yeah, a, a couple things. Um, let's see, I'm trying to go through your points. One, so I think, I think Thor was dealing with things differently than he was um, when he was overweight. Because when he was overweight, everyone that he had ever loved was dead, right? So he was right. trying to figure out, okay, I'm just simply depressed now because everyone I love is dead and I keep fighting and they're still dying. And so, right, he goes back in time, talks talks to his mom, he, he works out, he's figured it out. So now he knows that he can have a purpose on this world and he can make a difference but I think this movie he is him trying to figure out what that purpose is. So he got the light kind of under his butt, as to, as, so to speak, of that he can make a difference or that, no, like, he needs to be, you know, jacked and, and saving mm-hmm. people because he has a gift. But I think this movie, he's trying to figure out how to do that. And, right, you see conversations with Natalie Portman's character of, like, kind of um, reconciliation of past wrongs or doing this of um, – doing this instead of that, right? You have him of how, how to deal with and how to save uh, people. So I, I see a different kind of healing. That's at least how I interpret it. Like I, it could have easily been seen as, okay, it's just like a WandaVision where we're seeing the, the same arc for the third time. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a, a different kind of healing though on this one, slightly different. Um, but no, I, I see what you're saying. There were, the, the, I was even surprised by the heavy uh, jokes but honestly, for me, most of them landed uh, besides, yeah, the orgy jokes. I, I could have gone without – I could have gone with zero and maybe one, but they just kind of kept bringing that up. They really yeah, did. That whole scene was just that. But, um, uh, yeah, and, and there were a couple that, – that Natalie Portman joke was bad, but I kind of got the sense too. Like she would make a cheesy joke, and in the movie, Tessa Thompson and Chris would like cringe. Like it was kind of part yeah. of that. Like th- they were on purpose making that cheesy as a new Thor – um, mm-hmm. so I, but I could see that that could be misconstrued of like, did I miss something or was that just the worst joke of all time? You know, so yeah. it, it is tough. And yeah, again, like these are, these are deep plots that they still want to get through. But, and again, like it may not be with TD's fault, but back even with Robert Downey Jr. and Iron Man, he kind of somewhat started that. Like these are lighter movies, so to speak, of mm-hmm. always kind of have, they've always kind of had jokes. So now I think Wichiti is trying to make that through the lens of still trying to share this deep story of like, we don't want this to be just deep and dark, like DC. Like we still want this to be right. a light movie. However, we still have to navigate these deep moments uh, in this frame. So I, yeah. I think, I think maybe my main qualm aside from, I just feel like the balance of humor didn't work for me. And it, this mm-hmm. is the thing where you get into comedy where humor is so like subjective mm-hmm. that if a movie is yeah. relying a lot on its quality for, for it to be funny, which is why I think a lot of Age of Ultron doesn't work for people because a lot of Age of Ultron is like, if you think the jokes are funny, you're going to like this movie. And if you mm. don't find them that funny, you're not going to. I think that could be an element. But the other thing is, this is the just, I think the quintessential, like the critics in a many ways are right about just the CGI, like it's it's too much. Like it's over the time. Mm. And I get it's a space adventure, but like, some of it, it just seems like it's used so frequently and it's just not 
up to the par of a lot of other things that I, I just want them to get more creative. Um, I can't think of a single shot outside of that planet scene where I thought visually this looks really cool. Like a lot of it, I was like, Ugh. especially the open that hospital scene looks so real, dude. Okay. Well, yeah, that's probably because <laughs> they just filmed that on a set, but yeah. like the, the, just like the, especially the first opening scene, I was just like, this looks like a mess. Like I get mm. that we're trying to do colorful characters and a lot of stuff, but it's just, this just does not look good to me. Um, and I think that infected it. Like the hall of the gods didn't even look that good to me. Um, mm. and I don't need realism. Like I, I thought Ragnarok was beautiful and I just didn't think this one was as beautiful. Mm. Um, so I, and I think it's the expectation game, but I, I'm not going to call you a liar here, but I think that you were also expecting a really good movie following up Ragnarok. Like I, Ragnarok oh, yeah. is easily in everybody's top 10 in the MCU top five for most people. So I, I, it's not like I had comic book expectations of how this was going to go. My expectations were just Ragnarok was really good. Taika Waititi hasn't really made a bad movie yet. Like every movie I've seen of his, I really enjoyed. This should mm -hmm. be really good. And then I went in there and I thought it was meh, mm -hmm. and, which is how I still feel about it. I just think it's meh. Gotcha. So, so, so then what, what, I, what, how would you rate that then on my statement of Thor Love and Thunder being a good movie? One to five. Uh, what are you thinking? I'm going to give you a two. I really like, I think that obviously it wasn't a terrible argument, but I, I, I don't feel my opinion swayed. Um, mm. Maybe we should, maybe we should change the rating system because I feel like we're both just going to give twos or threes the whole time. Maybe we should change it to where it works a little differently in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, we can brainstorm that this week and this week. But yeah, but yeah, I, I thought I thought it was well presented. I thought it was a valiant effort, but I uh, I felt like there wasn't really anything that kind of got me. With the exception of I can see the Jane Foster point is is a pretty good point that most of her jokes are made like at the expense of her character, as mm -hmm. in it's clear like she doesn't really know what she's doing here. But again, one of my biggest problems is they're supposed to like have chemistry between her and Valkyrie. But it just feels like we don't get to see Jane as Thor for any amount of time. So that all mm. feels rushed. Like, and I, I just wanted that to be more developed. But yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's this comic storyline was just hard to tell in one movie, which is entirely mm. possible. Yeah. Hey, that's this has been episode 40. Uh, this has been our first segment of Let's Argue. And I would go as far to say that this won't be our last. That was kind of fun, and we'll probably. Do and I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure we have some some other takes that, you know, are di different from the others. So, but uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Let us know what you think. Uh, what do you want to watch? Episode 40. Nathan English and David Dirks sign off.